Okay. Shout out to Noah and Noble Dreams. These are field notes from Jersey City. Field note number two. Today, riding home on the PATH train, I was approached by a smartly dressed man who was curious about the faded and dirty patches on my backpack. Something about this guy. His ear-to-ear smile, the kindness in his accent, the glide in his stride upon approach, I just knew he was Zambian. The good folks sitting around us, they must have thought it strange to witness two strangers vigorously shake hands for five minutes, laugh uproariously about some fellow named Lungu, fumble over Bemba proverbs and their English equivalents, and look longingly out the window as we reminisced about a little something called Shima. You're goddamn right I've tasted the Shima, brother. We parted ways at Journal Square, but the good vibes remain. People here in Jersey walk around with furrowed brows, cold noses, eyes to the ground as if it were going somewhere, their hands in their pockets or wrapped around a cell phone. If you were to reach out for a handshake, they'd likely step back or turn away. I tell you, friend, it was like a burst of sunshine to meet a Zambian today. Maybe I'm just being nostalgic and shit, but but something is missing this side. Ding. Noble dreams of some noble dreams With his fingers and toes and everything in between With his friends and his foes and come see what that means traveling stories and uh, about how you had gone on this mammoth train voyage from Seattle to Chicago and uh, and I said well my favorite train story of all time was one that happened to me in Europe and in in the early 90s I went to an international AIDS conference in Berlin and I had this plan to meet my best friend from medical school this guy named Charlie and we were gonna meet up in Berlin and then hop on a train and, and take a train to Prague, see Prague and then, then come back. So we were really excited and it all worked out. You know, the last day of the, the AIDS conference, Charlie met me on the steps of the conference building and, and you know, it was great to see him and to see somebody I knew and we were really excited for this, going to the, this great city, Prague, which we had heard so much about. So. We, we go to the train compartment and it's and we're boarding the train and it's one of those classic train compartments where there are two seats on one side and two seats on the other side and you're facing your fellow passengers uh, pretty directly. And on the other side of us, there's a very attractive woman. One of the, one of the people in the other seats was really attractive and, you know, young and, and we were young at this point pretty young at this point and Charlie was was still single I, I was married so you know there was that but right from the get-go we realized that this woman sort of despised us you know just by her body language and and she was tisk tisking about you know she was overhearing some of our conversation 
So we sort of learned early on that she could speak English because certain things we said were obviously annoying her. And, you know, this went on for a long time on the train. And then at a certain point, Charlie said, um, you know, um, he, he directly started talking to her and said, you know, I can't help but notice that you really don't like us. And I'm wondering if you could tell us why. And she said, she basically launched into a tirade at that point, you know, where, oh, you, and this was all in a very thick uh, Eastern European accent that I can't do, unfortunately. But the gist of it was, oh, you Americans, you know nothing of the world. You're so provincial. Um, you know nothing about politics in any country but your own. In fact, you don't even have a, a rudimentary knowledge of geography. Now, at that, our, we were sort of absorbing this, this diatribe. But at that, you know, Charlie had to interject and because Charlie and I had always had this tradition where whenever we spoke to each other on the phone and you know, we spoke to each other quite commonly and this was before the internet was that big yet so phones were actually in use. So whenever we did that we had this tradition where we would quiz each other on a geography question. Like an example would be uh, starting in Egypt, go counterclockwise around the coast of Africa, naming every country. And, and, you know, that would be a relatively easy question. And so Charlie, at this point, interjected and, and he says, you know, and to a large extent, I agree with a lot of the things you're saying about Americans, and I, 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 I can go along with that. But there's one thing you have dead wrong about my friend and I, and that is that we are not good at geography. And he said, we happen to be really good at geography. And, you know, at that point, for the first time, she cracked a smile. And Charlie was, went on from there and he said, in fact, why don't you ask us a question? See if you can stump us. And she said, and at that time she was fully smiling, and she said, all right, tell me all the countries that border on the Black Sea. And Charlie just like... He just rattled them off, you know, he just couldn't have been more facile in, in how he, he was able to answer that question. And at that point, the ice was broken and she started talking to us and more, more exactly talking to Charlie in particular. So the rest of the, of the train ride passed much more amicably and quickly um, because we didn't feel like someone was glaring at us from across the seat. And then we arrive in Prague, and of course, you know, we're all shuffling around, gathering our belongings and getting ready to disembark from the train. And, um, and then I look over and I see this woman that we've been conversing with. She hands my friend Charlie a little piece of paper folded in half, and she exits the compartment and goes on her way. And Charlie looks down, and then he opens the uh, piece of paper so that I can see it. it. has her phone number on it. So that that was one of the great moments, traveling moments in my life. All right, I'm coming into the mic purview. I don't know if that's the right word. The area where we could both be heard. So thank you so much for telling that again. 
I think it's a beautiful illustration of uh, the willingness to challenge one's uh, preconceived notions. Have you, even in the short time we've spent together, you've mentioned Indonesia and Africa and Eastern Europe, and it seems like you've traveled fairly extensively. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I've been really lucky that way. I've gotten to travel, and some of that has been traveling with work, which is, you know, especially like, sort of like having your cake and eat it too. You, you're working, but it's still fascinating and fun and exciting all at once. And what is your work that you'd be doing? Well, um, for example, in Indonesia, I was doing a study to sort of figure out the best ways to promote successful HIV therapy or antiretroviral therapy uh, among HIV-infected injection drug users in Jakarta and Bali. Even though Bali is sort of this idyllic tropical paradise, it still has a very meaningful drug abuse problem, drug use problem. And uh, at that point in time in Indonesia's HIV epidemic, drug use was the most important driver of, of the country's epidemic. So we were trying to figure out how to help drug users who sort of live chaotic lives, how to help them take their medications successfully. And that's an example of a work trip that brought me to this sort of exotic and fascinating place and you know Jakarta is on the island of Java and it's very Islamic sort of strict feeling and austere whereas Bali is a Hindu island with a totally different feel to it much more gentle gentle feeling culture so the whole thing was just very fascinating and yet in both locations there was this rollicking HIV epidemic going on, rapidly advancing HIV epidemic, and we were trying to do something to stop that from spreading so successfully. Because the best way you can do that is by successfully getting people on treatment. Because once they're on treatment, their viral load goes down and they're much less capable of transmitting it to other mm -hmm. people. So it's the idea of treatment as prevention. And... Um... My brain just went totally blank for a second here. <laughs> in, in traveling to such to cultures which are fairly obviously different than... I mean, right now we're in the suburbs of Chicago, essentially. What have you found to have been the most sort of connective things between you and, and the people that you've traveled to? Like, what are the bridges that, that uh, span across language divides or, or cultural norms or things like that? Well, some of it is the work itself, you know, the work is the, is, is the glue that binds you together, you know, that the, the indigenous people that you're working with really want to help their country deal with something as massive as the HIV epidemic, and they're very invested in that, and that makes them very willing and enthusiastic partners. Uh, often, and that was certainly the case in Indonesia in that work. I, you know, like I, my still my single biggest Facebook friend group is is all these people I worked with and met in in Indonesia. But beyond the work, there's the sheer human connection of getting to know people and getting to try to understand 
what it's like to live in an Islamic place, what it's like to live in an Islamic place when you're an injection drug user. All those things are just fascinating dynamics that that are very real and, and very important in, in trying to grapple with such a with such a challenging health issue as, as HIV uh, AIDS so there's doing the research but then there's the interstitial moments when you're just hanging out with your staff and going to dinner and and all that stuff comes together to make this very sort of rich experience that that in the end becomes unforgettable and and something I'm really glad I got to experience yeah is is that the um, only place where you've been able to work abroad, or, or have you had other assignments? No, I, I I've had other assignments, most of them domestic. Honestly, I I came relatively late to global work, or rather, I should say, I came very early to it, and then there was a long hiatus where I didn't do global work, and then toward the end of my career, it's I've circled back to do some global work, but. Another example of something I did was in Ukraine, which is in the news a lot now for other reasons, but that's another place where there's, you know, a lot of injection drug use that once the Iron Curtain came down and, and, and those societies loosened up, there was this burgeoning injection drug use problem in those countries. And with that lifestyle and came HIV and and also came a lot of tuberculosis and what I was doing in Ukraine was a pilot study in the in the city of Kiev where we were trying to gauge how well this one county the Kiev is a county like sort of like Chicago is Cook County how well this county was was really dealing with their TB burden which was per, sort of off the charts out of control with a lot of antibiotic-resistant tuberculosis, drug-resistant tuberculosis circulating there. And we went in and we tried to review a bunch of medical records on TB patients to figure out how well they were doing in completing therapy and in achieving cure and, and, and those kinds of metrics. And I don't know, it was just another fascinating experience because I was in this, in the Ukraine... This was in the mid-2000s, like 2007, I want to say. And it was sort of a previously Soviet society that was coming out of Soviet rule. So a lot of the iron grip of the Soviet Union was slipping away, which in general, that kind of opening is a good thing. But in the case of TB control, it can not be the best thing because in the old Soviet Union approach, you, you were sort of hospitalized and observed taking your medications. So there was no question of not adhering to therapy, whereas as things loosened up, the question of non-adherence and, and not uh, taking this life-saving treatment was more in doubt and, 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 and failure was more of a real possibility. So it was just fascinating to confront an issue like tuberculosis control in a country that what always amazes me about public health is how politics and health intersect in many of well in any venue really or any location there's always this intersection between what's going on in a society 
and these diseases that are burdening this society. And there it was a fascinating uh, dynamic that was playing out. And we did figure out that, that TB uh, control in that country had really uh, fallen to very, had deteriorated greatly, where a lot of, there's, there's a, a TB metric called default, that is, when you're on TB therapy and then you stop it for at least two months, that's called defaulting on therapy. And the rate of defaults were skyrocketing in the country and we were able to document that by reviewing all these medical records. And more importantly, we're then able to make recommendations about how to, what factors seem to be associated with this fall off and good therapy and how, that, how the country might deal with it. So. Yeah, so, so like this, the built-in structure that the Soviet Union provided, although it was probably oppressive for a lot of people, gave people who were kind of needed it a really helpful thing to keep up with. So what was what was something that you guys came up with that would help combat that or or address that well defaulting epidemic? We ended up recommending an approach that has been very successful in the United States, which is called directly observed therapy, which strangely enough, in a sense, was what was going on in the Soviet Union days, or, or when the Soviet Union controlled Ukraine. In, in that, But the difference is that in the United States, when you have TB, you're not generally hospitalized. You're, you're taking your TB therapy at home in the old Soviet days, people were literally locked in TB sanitarium and forced to take medicines. Now that infrastructure was falling apart and they hadn't yet developed their outpatient capacity to deal with TB. So we ended up giving them advice to implement what had worked in the United States so well, which is a program called Directly Observed Therapy or DOT. Uh, and DOT means you have people, well, it can work in a variety of ways. In some iterations, the TB patients come to a clinic every day, are given their medications, and are observed to swallow them, literally swallow the medications in front of the public health nurse that's administering the medications. In another iteration, the public health nurses actually travel into the neighborhoods of the patients, knock on doors, and deliver the therapy and directly observe its, its uh, ingestion. Anyway, we, we said what we advised was that they had to put more energy into outpatient adherence mechanisms like that now that their strict control of uh, administering TB therapy as inpatient in, in an inpatient context was, was sort of dissipating and, and not in the old days, you know, you could literally not leave against medical advice. That's a term when a, when a patient in the United States refuses therapy, they sign a form that they're leaving against medical advice. In the Soviet days, you couldn't sign a form like that. You'd be locked up. You were, that, that was just not going to happen. But now in the post-Soviet era in Ukraine, they had entered an era where, where patients were non-adherent, were leaving... They, they, they were still trying to enforce two months of inpatient care for TB, but patient, patients were commonly leaving against medical advice, mm -hmm. and they didn't have the teeth anymore 
through these rather draconian, totalitarian kinds of uh, forceful ways of forcing patients to do things anymore. So the, 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 the end result was poor records of completion, poor adherence to TB therapy, and poor control of tuberculosis. So your, so your approach is basically, since we can't make them come to us anymore, go out to them. Go, go out to them, yeah. exactly. Now that does cost money, and it's right. highly labor-intensive, and it's in some sense glib to say, well, you should try what we did, because we're the richest country in the world. Uh-huh. So there was some... We'll have to work on that, yeah. and they'll have to make a decision to devote resources to it, but... but I think what was what was valuable was sort of diagnostically telling them what was going wrong. That that their hypothesis when they invited us out there was that physicians were incorrectly prescribing medications, and that and so we divided our work between looking at what we call physician-driven er- errors and patient-generated errors. Patient-generated errors would be people not refusing to take their medicines right. and non-adherent. And what we found is that there was some some physician error going on, and that could be ameliorated with educational programs for physicians. But what we found to be the bigger problem was that the patients were non-adherent often, and that there was not a good uh, infrastructure capable of sort of engaging them in good care. Do you, do you think, like, I mean, you, it seems like it would be logical that if you had a disease that you'd want to keep up with your treatment for it, but do you think there was also, like, a sort of rebellious part of it? Like, we don't, that's what they made us do when, when the Soviet Union was... I think possibly that was part of it. Um, people don't like to be locked up, period. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whether it's even if you, and the the truth is that within two weeks of starting TB therapy, it's pretty dramatic. It, if you've ever, I mean, TB is one of the most rewarding diseases to treat successfully because within two weeks of starting good therapy, good being, the the germ is not resistant to the therapy, uh, antibiotic resistant to the therapy. The patient's sense of well-being returns, their appetite returns, they start putting on weight. Uh, and within two weeks, they're feeling pretty darn good, generally speaking. And then it becomes quite feasible to say, oh, well, I'm better now. I can walk. And But they, you really, to complete therapy, you need a full six months, not two weeks. And there's the rub. That's mm-hmm. that's That's the challenge. It's the easiest thing in the world to start somebody on TB therapy because they are so motivated, they're feeling lousy. Right, right, right. But then soon they start feeling much better and that motivation level goes down. Right. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Do you have a, uh, a travel story that involves either music or animals? Music or animals? Well, I have one animal story. Yeah, I, I have one animal story. I, I was... Uh, this was my first trip to Africa. I was in Kenya, and it was I was with my wife, and and you know we were we were young. I we had just finished our medical residencies at this point, and we were contracted by Direct Relief International to work at a hospital in the western part of Kenya near the city of Kisumu, and um, but you know we had vacation time too. 
And on one of our vacations, we went to one of the game parks. I think it was, I can't remember which one it was, maybe Savo. And we were at our lodge, and those lodges are very nice. And you sit on a veranda, and you watch the watering hole that's with your binoculars, and you're seeing all kinds of amazing things. But the other thing is that baboons know there's food where you are, so they come around, and they almost seem tame, but they're not, you know, they're, they have big canine teeth. and But, you know, I was an avid photographer, so I, I was like, wow, it's a really opportunity to get really close-up views of a baboon. So I was like, you know, going pretty close to these baboons and focusing my camera on them. And all of a sudden, it seemed to me like, I didn't think my lens was that capable of enlargement. <laughs> oh my God, it looks like it's right in front of me. And I dropped the camera and there was like a baboon with an agonistic display baring his, <laughs> his canine teeth at me, you know, and I just turned tail and I ran and I threw my camera back <laughs> and I my wife was laughing because this was all playing out she was comfortable on the veranda while I had sort of wandered off to get a close-up of the baboons you know and that's one story I remember very clearly have you ever seen those pictures that a monkey somewhere took a selfie no I no. can't remember the story behind it but some photographer was working with these monkeys, and I don't remember if they kind of taught them how to use the camera or just... But, yeah, there's a this sort of a famous picture from a few years ago. This monkey took a selfie, and it's like, a, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a pretty, it's a pretty stunning picture. But, yeah, I think, yeah, wow, that's pretty startling. <laughs> yeah, baboons are pretty scary-looking to me. I don't know. It's, it's interesting, those game parks. You know, the truth is that those... The savanna is so beautiful with the acacia trees and and the colors, all these earth tones, sort of like a pastelish kind of earth tony environment. And they're so beautiful that I would gladly just go to a game park without game, you know. Mm. But to have the game there is like this incredible bonus, you know, where you're seeing lions and it's just... A, and we were there during the migration. Oh, there's another animal story I had once on another trip to East Africa, actually. This was, when it was in Tanzania, where I was... Uh, and this was a work trip. We had this idea to implement uh, a surveillance system to keep track of zoonotic infectious diseases in the villages that surrounded Serengeti National Park. And it's interesting because on one side of Serengeti National Park, it's pretty populous, you know, they're like pretty dense populated villages. And then on the other side, it's Maasai with much more rarefied population density with only a few of, of these um, villages and scattered uh, along the side. So it was, you know, a very interesting project. But we just got, we and we were partnering with veterinarians in the Serengeti National Park who were stationed at this German zoological society group of buildings. And they invited us to stay at these buildings and we were going to meet and plan different kinds of research that we could do together. And 
it just so happened that it all coincided with the great migration of the wildebeest coming through the Serengeti at that moment in time. So I was in an outbuilding and we would have to walk to the main building to eat. <laughs> and they told us at dinner time when it's dark out, you really have to take a flashlight and you have to pan the surroundings as you exit your house to make sure there are no predators lurking. And I said, well, that's interesting. And for two nights that went fine and we walked over and had dinner. Third night I actually did see eyes looking back at me and then as my eyes acclimated, I turned the flashlight off and I just started looking. It was clear that there were hyena out there. And so, you know, I said, I'll put off dinner a little while tonight and wait a while before I go over to the main building. But, but the thing I was telling about the migration was one of these nights we went to bed and in the morning we woke up and try to imagine the sound that thousands of kids would make eating Cheerios, you know, like, <laughs> like dry Cheerios. Yeah. And that's what I was hearing, like this chomp, chomp, crunch, crunch, crunch kind of sound. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, I had uh, slatted, you know, with blinds on the window, and I, I moved the blinds so I could see. And when I moved the blinds, even though it was, it was daylight out, it was morning, I still couldn't see very well. And I didn't understand why I had no view out the window. And then this Cape Buffalo raised its head. It had been gra grazing under my window and it raised its head and I was looking into the eyes of a Cape Buffalo with only a glass, you know, they can charge and stuff, yeah. with only a glass between us. And I just sort of closed the blinds <laughs> backed off. And, but that sound was, it wasn't just Cape Buffalo. There were thousands of wildebeest that had migrated into our complex during the night while we were sleeping. And we woke up to the sound of them grazing, which was this incredible experience. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I would, I've never been to Africa. I'd really like to go. If anybody listening wants to bring me along on an Africa trip, just uh, drop a line. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I've been lucky that way yeah. to be able to go on those trips. Yeah, it sounds incredible. <laughs> close, <laughs> close encounters, <laughs> left and right. Yeah, so the reason Ron and I are sitting here together is the other evening I was with my sister in Seattle and she said hey no you know uh Merv's dad this is your podcast <laughs> and he loves it and I was like what because I I don't um because this thing's still pretty new I I don't I haven't gotten too much feedback and especially not from somebody from people that I don't know because it's I don't know who's listening to it that I don't know I just don't you know I don't have that information yet but I was, I was really excited to hear that, and, and I was just curious, and so, and she said, and by the way, he lives in Chicago, and I was like, well, that's where I'm headed, so maybe hook us up, it would be fun to meet, and that's what we're doing at the moment, and uh, I was wondering if you would be willing to share just what's your experience been of, of, uh, of listening to the show, and what's, what have you gotten from doing so? I, I, I love the podcast, you know, I, 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 uh. I got introduced to it by Facebook. It was your mom actually posted 
on Facebook saying, my son has this new podcast, uh, give it a try, you know, give it a listen. And I'm, I'm relatively new to podcasts. <laughs> like my, that's something my daughter has turned me on to, is, is the, the, the joy of podcasts. And so I said, you know, I'll give it a try. And right away, I, the, the whole Noble Dreams experience appealed to a lot of things that I, that I really love. You know, I, I love nature, and there was one early uh, episode where you went on a walk, really, in beautiful places, and I think it was Vermont. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you would stop, and there was some salamander or something, and you would talk about... It was a red ant or something like that, and you just told the whole life cycle of this this uh, salamander, and I don't know. I just found it. It's I don't know. Maybe somebody with a medical education like me, I love to classify things and name things, and there was something about your your, your sort of encyclopedic knowledge of, of this salamander that made me instantly sort of bond with 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 the the, uh, the Noble Dreams podcast. And then I, I just also, there's an aspect to it where it seems like a lot of people on the podcast are seekers who are trying to figure things out and, and you know, sort of experimenting and, and with a lot of different ways of going about living and approaching life. And, and I don't know, it just, from the perspective of being an older person, it was just so fun to hear about younger people who were going, figuring that stuff out and doing it in these very creative ways. And, and then, then there were other things that appealed to me. I, 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 I'm not a good runner, but I, I love to run, um, endurance events and, and some of it was, you know, hiking the long trail was an episode that really appealed to me because I, I've enjoyed challenging myself with marathons and things like that. And, I don't know, so there were just many, many elements of it that really, really appealed to it. And lastly, there's the music, which, like, I'm not as much into new uh, music as you are, Noah, I think, but I do, like, love music in a sense, um, and I just liked, you know, but I'm pretty mainstream, you know, with listening to big groups and hearing some of the the lesser-known early phase groups that you've shared with, with your listener group just really appealed to me, too. And I, I found myself really loving some of the music I was hearing on the podcast, too. So all of those things came together and made me a fan, I guess, of, of Noble <laughs> Dreams, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm so honored. I'm, I'm, really glad that, I'm really glad that it's speaking to you. It's, it's really special for me to get that feedback especially from someone that I've never met before, who has, I mean, your daughter and my sister are good friends, but otherwise we're not connected, obviously, until now. Something I like to ask people when I remember to is if there's any books or films or music or anything in those realms that have spoken to you recently that you might want the world to know about. Um... Yeah, I mean, there's a book I read in the last six months or so that I think is a masterpiece that I would strongly recommend to anyone. It's called Bear Town, and we're in Chicago area now, and it's not about the Chicago Bears, I promise. 
it's it's just this great book that's by Swedish author I'm looking over because I think it's over Frederick Bachman is his name and it's a book called Bear Town and it's I guess you would say it's a hockey book it's it's about a small town in Sweden where life pretty much revolves around this uh, community hockey team that that is in a league and competes with other surrounding towns and stuff. But to dismiss this as a sports book or a hockey book just is a great disservice to the book. It's like all great sports books. It's about so much more than the sport. And in the course of reading this book, you become really attached to about 20 characters. It, it's almost like a Russian novel, you know, where you you really care about so many different people you're meeting in this book and uh, it covers important issues of even in a sense meet the violence against women is is covered in this in this novel there's a lot in it and I, I'd really recommend it I, I, I loved it Beartown cool Beartown by Frederick Bachman um, yeah I, I gotta I want to make a compile a list because we'll put it on the website or something of, of all the the recommended things from people, because I'm I'm looking forward to sort of going through it myself. I've I've, I've been able to catch a few of the things that people have recommended, but I'm a really slow reader, so it's <laughs> especially in the book department, it takes quite a while. It's, yeah, I'm getting slower myself. <laughs> <laughs> I I read about ten minutes before I go to bed every night, so novels don't go quickly anymore. Yeah. That's, uh, I had to admit to some degree of envy hearing about your 48-hour train ride, and I think I even wrote you, I hope you have a good book, you know, because unobstructed ability to read is, is not in the offing for me too often. Yeah, well, yeah, my sister gave me this book to borrow about this guy who lives out on the Great Plains and got really interested in uh, farming buffalo or bison, and in order for it to both increase their numbers and also reintegrate their their uh, contribution to the original prairie grasses and stuff like that and to recreate some of that original habitat. So, yeah, I was really proud of myself. I'm like maybe 70 pages in or something, which for me in two days is like pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> for me, that would be very good. Yeah. Um, and I'm really excited. I'm, they're... they're one of my absolute favorite favorite animals and and uh, so I was really pumped and I, I have this thing like the buffalo is what I consider, consider my heart animal and I have this like sort of agreement with myself that whenever I go out on a trip I always keep an eye out for them whether in some sort of visual representation or the actual animals and that's like my way of confirming I mean, this is just like a little thing I do with myself, but it's a way of sort of like, just a little nudge, like, you're meant to be on this trip, this is good, you're on the path or whatever. And so it was really nice, like, in my last stop on this West Coast tour that I've just been on, that, you know, completely unsolicited, my sister was just like, hey, I think you might dig this book. <laughs> it's about buffaloes. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it, Let's do it. I don't know. There's a yeah. special place in heaven for, for people who recommend good books for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you're one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, 
Ron, thank you so much for doing this. I, I'm really uh, and for hosting me. I'm really grateful for it, and it's been it's been great to yeah to get no, to spend this short time with you. Please, whenever you come by these parts, consider this a home stop for you. And I hope I hope uh, this is the first of many um, encounters and visits. And and thanks for for making it happen because. I know you have your own friends in the area, and I'm grateful to Anna, too, for suggesting it, so kudos to her as well. Yeah, my sister's a real rock star. Definitely. We, we can all agree on that. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. All right. That's perfect. That's so good. I share with you. 
forever And we both know that's true So we picked up some stones together Cast them into that indigo It knows the wrong right track. 